Our scripture reading this morning is from the Gospel according to Mark chapter 8, beginning at verse 40. You'll find that on page 1101, 1101 in the Pew Bibles, Luke chapter 8, and I'll begin at verse 40 and read to the end of the chapter. Listen carefully, this is God's Word. Now, when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed Him, for they were all waiting for Him. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue. And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored Him to come to His house, for he had an only daughter, about twelve years of age, and she was dying. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him, and there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for twelve years, and though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, Who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, The crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace." While he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, Your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, Do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father and mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her, but he said, Do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once. And he directed that something should be given her to eat. And her parents were amazed, but he charged them to tell no one what had happened. Thus far, the reading of God's Word. I mentioned last Lord's Day that Luke, the gospel writer, intends for us to understand these two stories together. The story begins with Jairus, a ruler of the synagogue, coming to the Lord Jesus, pleading for him to come to his house because his daughter was dying. She was close to death. And then that is interrupted, as you remember, by this woman with an issue of blood who pressed in on Jesus and touched his fringe of his garment. And then that whole episode took place. And then Luke picks up the story of Jairus again in verse 49 when he says, while he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, 
And so Luke intends for us to understand these two stories together. And he connects them in other ways, as I mentioned last Lord's Day. Both of these women are daughters, the one because that's how Jesus addressed her, the other because she is the daughter of Jairus. The one has been sick for as long as the other one had been alive, 12 years, and both of them were unclean, the one because of sickness, the other because of death, and Jesus restores both of them. Now, there is a reason why Luke writes the way that he does. Of course, it's in part because that's the way the story unfolded, but he didn't have to follow the events that actually happened. He could have rearranged things. You see the Bible writers doing that. But he does it because he wants the middle of the story to inform the outside edges of the story. And in the middle of the story, as we saw Jesus' encounter with the women with the issue of blood, we saw the profound kindness of the Lord Jesus Christ, even when it didn't seem to be kindness but his profound kindness, and we see how he rewarded this woman's faith. Your faith, he said, has made you well, daughter. Go in peace. Well, this morning I want to trace with you uh, the journey of Jairus, uh, the father of the girl who was near death at the beginning of the story, at death near the end, and then restored to life at the very end. We encounter Jairus as he comes up to Jesus in quite a huff here in verse 41. He was a ruler of the synagogue, and he falls at Jesus' feet. He implores him to come to his house, for he had an only daughter about 12 years of age, and she was dying. I think it's not difficult for us to enter into the urgency of the situation that faced Jairus and his wife. You can see them standing at the bedside of their little daughter. No one likes to see a child be ill, and especially when the child's health is ebbing fast. You can see them reach out their hand to put it on the forehead of their little girl to see if the fever has somewhat subsided. You can see them alternately looking at the little girl and then at one another with their foreheads furrowed in concern. Things are not looking good, and there is nothing they can actually do for their little girl. But then, of course, they remembered the Lord Jesus. It was impossible for anyone not to have heard about the Lord Jesus because His fame was everywhere. Everyone had heard about his mighty acts of kindness, the way that he had healed the sick and cast out the demons and stilled the wind and the waves. His fame had gone before him. And so these parents decide that they would send Jairus, that he would leave the bedside of his dying daughter and would run to the Lord Jesus for his help. And that's where we encounter him, running to the Lord Jesus falling at his feet, imploring him to come to his house because his little girl was dying. Here you have a man in desperation seeking the help of the Lord Jesus. And I want to say to you that that really is a picture of all of us. We are 
people in desperation. And we're in desperation for a variety of concerns. All of you know the difficulties of life and the panic that sometimes sets into your lives because of the providences of God, because of the difficulty of dealing with difficult people, because of the unkindness that you've experienced at the hands of others, because of the concerns for your marriage or for your family, because of the struggles of the soul and the temptations of sin and the fight against sin. We are all desperate people. We all come very quickly to the end of our resources. Not that we always recognize that we have come to the end of our resources, but we do come very quickly to the end of our resources, and we need the help and grace of someone else. We need the Lord Jesus Christ. And so what we have here in Jairus is a, is a wonderful example for us, that in all of our desperation, and all of our need, and all of our weakness, when the world presses in on us and we feel so profoundly helpless because of life and all of its difficulties, we ought to go to the Lord Jesus to trust in Him and to ask Him to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. And so you have that illustration in Jairus. But there's another illustration that I want to point out to you. Notice that this faith that Jairus expresses when he goes to Jesus, expecting that Jesus would then come to his house to help him in his situation, that it is a father's faith. It wasn't the little girl who went to Jesus to ask for help. It was Jairus, the father, who asks on behalf of his daughter. Now, that's not insignificant, of course, because we are Reformed Christians, and we believe that God works along family lines, along covenantal lines, and that God loves us as adults, and that He loves our children because He loves us, just as we see here that he answered the prayer of the father for the daughter because his mercy is from generation to generation for those who fear him and his righteousness with children's children. I mean, you, you look through the Scriptures and you see right at the beginning, at the headwaters of human society, that the way that Adam acts has repercussions for all of Adam's posterity the whole way down. And so we know that sin travels through families. And so grace, which is God's response to sin, grace which is always greater than sin, we would expect that grace would run down family lines as well. And, and that's the very thing that we see in the Scriptures. So if you were to ask the question, why were Noah's children saved from the deluge of God's judgment? Well, it was because of Noah, their father. He was a righteous man who feared God. And so the family was saved because of the faith of Noah. That is, they were saved from the temporal judgment of God. And so we see this pattern throughout the Scriptures, that God blesses His people in family lines. Remember how when we come to the New Testament, our Lord Jesus uh, has to rebuke his disciples because the disciples were rebuking parents who were bringing their little children to the Lord Jesus. And, and Jesus says, don't forbid them from doing that. 
because I love the children of those who love me. And he takes these children in his arms and he blesses them. This is a father's faith. And it's so important for us to understand that because whether we realize it or not, and I hope we do, that our children by nature, yes, they're included in the church of God, but our children by nature are in a far more precarious situation than this little girl's physically speaking. She was unwell physically, and physical death faced her. But our children are by nature spiritually unwell. They have the disease of the soul, and there is only the expectation of judgment unless God, by His grace, intervenes in our children's lives and brings about a new heart and a new life. And it's so crucial for us as parents that we would come to the Lord Jesus, that we would fall before Him, that we would implore Him to come to our house and work His grace in our children's lives. I mean, there's probably no area of life in which we are more helpless than in the area of the spiritual life of our children. And so if anything should prompt us to go to the Lord Jesus Christ, it would be that. And Jairus is a wonderful example for us. He comes as a father for the sake of his children to the Lord Jesus and implores his health, his help. And he implores him, trusting that the Lord Jesus is able to bring blessing. And it appears that the Lord Jesus is going to bring blessing. Things go very well. Notice, right after he implores Jesus in verse 42, it says there at the end, as Jesus went. So Jesus is on the way. He has acquiesced to the request of Jairus. He's going to take care of the situation. Of course, it wasn't as quickly as Jairus wanted because the people were pressing in on Jesus, it says. But even so, Jesus was making progress step by step, he came closer and closer to Jairus' house. And then, all of a sudden, he stops and asks, who was it that touched me? And you get the idea that Jesus is standing there, and he's looking around at the crowd, waiting for someone to fess up. And then Peter responds, oh, the master, all the crowds are pressing on you. What a silly question for you to ask. And yet Jesus is insistent. Someone touched me because he perceived that power had gone out from him. And then finally, the woman confesses. And then she takes all this time to tell Jesus what her problem had been and why she had done what she did and, and how she had been made immediately well. And you can see Jairus looking at his watch if he had one. The minutes are ticking by Will you hurry up, Lord? Will you come quickly, please? You've been in that situation before where something just depended on the right timing and you're looking constantly at your watch or your phone. You know it's only been 30 seconds since you looked at your watch the last time, but you so are such, in such a panic. It's so important for you for this to take place and for everything to, to mesh up. And, and you can imagine that's what Jairus is thinking. Jesus, will you not hurry up? 
My daughter's dying. We don't have much time left. And then the news comes from the ruler's house. In verse 49, your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. Son, welcome news, but it's not unexpected. He had left her when she was unwell. And so Jesus is too late. That is, he is too late if he's just a teacher. If he's just a teacher, then that's right. Jairus might as well go home. There's no sense hanging around anymore. The child is dead. There's no hope left. He might as well go home and comfort his wife and make the uh, funeral plans. And besides, it would look very unprofessional for a ruler of the synagogue to stand there begging for Jesus to come when when it's obvious that there's nothing that Jesus can do anymore. And then Jesus speaks. And if you have your Bible open, notice what it says there in verse 50. But Jesus, on hearing this, so he had heard the report, your daughter is dead, do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him. Now, that's peculiar, isn't it? He answered him. It it almost seems like Jairus is looking at Jesus and thinking and saying, if not in words, at least with expression. So what do, I, what do I do? I mean, it makes sense for me to go home because my daughter's dead, but, but should I go home? Jesus, answering him, says, do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. Remember how Jesus had highlighted the faith of the woman who had the flow of blood. Remember how Jesus had singled her out after she was healed and said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Your faith was timid. You didn't dare come to me face to face like Jairus and ask me right out to heal you. But you still had faith. You, You touched the tassel of my garment. And it's that faith, that trust, that confidence in me that has saved you. That's what he had said to the woman while Jairus was there. And now he reiterates that and says to Jairus himself, do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. What prompted you to come to me, Jairus? Well, faith, right, will only believe. Keep on trusting. You have heard nothing that should give you any pause. The fact that your daughter is dead is no impediment to me at all. Just trust me, Jairus. Just believe with the same faith with which you came to me in the first place. Jairus' faith is tested here. And that is what the Lord does in our lives. He tests our faith not to see if we have any, although sometimes he does that as well, but, but he has another reason for testing our faith. I mean, so, sometimes when you build something, for instance, you, you do test it to make sure that it's working. I, a number of years ago, I did some plumbing in my house, and 
I had to tie into existing copper pipe and I uh, made all the connections and at 2.30 in the morning I thought I better test this so I turned the taps on and there were no leaks anywhere except there was hot water going to the toilet bowl. I tested it and it failed the test. Sometimes God does that in lives of people. He tests them to see whether they have faith at all. But sometimes in the lives of his own people, he tests them not to see whether they have faith, but he puts their faith under pressure in order to make their faith stronger. You see, we live by faith and not by sight. We live by the promises of God. And the promises of God encompass the totality of our lives. It has to do with the forgiveness of sin. It has to do with living in difficulty because of sickness or ill health. It has to do with the relationships. It has to do with financial difficulty. Every aspect of our life is lived in light of the promises of God, and God's grace flows to us as we trust Him for the promises. So faith is so absolutely vital for the Christian's life and for the Christian's happiness, and God puts pressure on our faith in order that our faith might be stronger. That's what he's doing here. He could have just, well, of course, he didn't even have to go to Jairus' house. He could have just said the word, and Jairus' little girl would be healed, but, but that's not the way he did it in Jairus' life. He encouraged Jairus' faith by going to him, and then he tested Jairus' faith by putting everything on pause until it seemed like it was absolutely hopeful, hopeless, and then he encouraged him to press on. And so that's what God does in our lives. He brings hardships. He delays answers to prayer. Sometimes he gives us crowds that surround us that are all undermining our faith. He allows Satan to assault us just like Satan assaulted Job in the Old Testament Scriptures. He orchestrates our life to put our faith under pressure so that our faith might come out all the more strong and useful. This is what uh, Peter said to his readers. He says, um, remember how in in 1 Peter 1, he's speaking about the great inheritance that God has promised for his people. While we're not there yet, would to God that we were, but we're in this world with all of its struggles and burdens and toils and tribulations. And, And Peter says, in this, he says, you rejoice that is, in the inheritance you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. God, if necessary, never if it's not necessary, God does not needlessly bring hardships in your life. But if he must for your good, he will. He brings trials. He grieves you by these various trials so that your faith may be strengthened and proved genuine on that final day. Faith expressed by Jairus, then faith tested. And finally, faith 
rewarded. Jesus does end up getting to Jairus' home, and we see that the little girl was restored. Jairus' faith was rewarded, not, not because his faith was so strong, so much as because it was placed in the Lord Jesus Christ. And you see that one of the rewards of his faith is that his little girl is restored to life. You could call it a resurrection, but it's not really a complete resurrection, not because she wasn't dead. She was dead, even though Jesus says that she's asleep. He's saying that she's sleeping in order to tell us as Christians that death has no finality. It is only a movement from this life to the life to come. We fall asleep in the Lord Jesus only to awake in glory. But it's not an actual resurrection because this little girl dies again, right? She's buried later, perhaps this time by someone other than her parents. But she does die again. But what we do see in this resurrection is, in this restoration rather, is a foretaste of what will happen in the resurrection on the great day when Jesus returns in glory. And so Jesus arrives at the house. He enters the house with Peter and John and James and the father and mother of the child. And the mourners are there around uh, the grave of, or around uh, the, the, the bed of this little girl. And he sends them out. He says, uh, do not weep for she's not dead but sleeping. And they just laugh at him. They mock him. But but he knows what he is about to do. And then notice that uh, in verse 54 that he takes her by the hand. I love that. Just imagine that picture of the Lord Jesus at the bedside of this little girl, and he takes her by the hand. She's dead, which means she's unclean. That's no impediment for our Lord. It's, it's really a picture of Jesus' incarnation, that that he enters into our world, just like he entered into this little girl's world by touching her hand. You see, he's the eternal Son of God living for all eternity in heaven with the Father and the Spirit, and yet he comes into this world, this world that's under the curse of sin, surrounded by uncleanness. That's what our Lord Jesus does in order to bring us restoration and life. And so uh, he takes her by the hand, and then he speaks, child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once. Remember what uh, the Lord Jesus said in John 5. He says that uh, one day he's going to come and bring eternal life to people. This is what he says, truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. So that's what happened here. This little girl, dead, dead, and because she's dead, she's deaf. This little girl hears the voice of the Son of God, and she lives. You see, it's not just because Jesus entered into our humanity that he's able to do that. It's because he has the power over death, because He's going to go to the cross 
and He's going to die the death that sin deserves as He stands or hangs on the cross with the weight of humanity's sin upon His shoulders. He dies the penalty of sin. Remember, in the day that you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. Our Lord Jesus enters into the penalty of sin. He dies, and by His death, He's victorious over death. He holds the keys of death and hell. And because of what He is going to do, He is able to take this little girl by the hand and say, Child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once. And He directed her that something should be given her to eat. No convalescing. Immediate restoration and restoration to complete health just like that. Why? Because the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God and they shall live. Just as God at the beginning breathed life into Adam that he had formed, whom he had formed out of the dust, so now our Lord Jesus speaks and breathes life into this little girl. That's the reward of faith. And of course, of course, this tells us that God will do whatever He promises to do. He had said to Jairus, do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. And she was well, because he's not a liar. He's not uh, unfaithful to His words. Not one of all the promises of God ever fall to the ground. So whatever He promises to do for you, you trust Him. He might test your faith, but you cling to Him, and you will be rewarded. He will do whatever He promises. But I think we make a mistake if we think that the only reward of Jairus' faith was that his little girl was restored. That's one of the benefits, one of the blessings. But there's another one, And that is that he got a glimpse of the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is important, you know, because sometimes we we want what Jesus offers to us. We want forgiveness of sins. We want comfort in our distress. We want to be helped when we are grieving. We want what Jesus gives us. And Jesus says to us, I don't want you just to want what I give you. I want you to want me. And once you have me, you'll get everything else as well. But you won't get everyone else if you don't have me. And so here, not only does he give them the blessings of the restoration to life, he gives them himself. You see, this is, this is why Jesus orchestrated all the events so that his little girl, Jairus' little girl, would die before Jesus arrived. It was so that they might know Jesus in a better way than they would have known him had he come while she was still ill. Remember, um, remember with Lazarus, Jesus hears the news that his friend Lazarus is uh, sick, and, and then it says there in John 11 that he stayed a few days longer, and then Jairus dies, I mean, Lazarus dies, and And why would you stay? Why wouldn't you go there and and be there so that you could heal him before he died? And uh, Jesus says, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. And that's what we have happening here. 
Notice who he takes with him. It's Peter, John, and James, and the father and mother. But Peter, John, and James, they're the inner circle of Jesus' disciples. He's, he's going to take them with him on the Mount of Transfiguration in the next chapter, in chapter 9, verse 28. Now, about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. So, so there, on the Mount of Transfiguration, he takes these three because this is going to be an unveiling of his glory. They're going to see Jesus in a way that no one else sees him in all of his brilliance and magnificence and and power and majesty. Well, that's what he's doing here in Jairus' house. He takes the three disciples. He takes the father and mother. He goes into the room with this little girl, this dead little girl, Jairus. He takes her by the hand. He says, child, arise. And the curtain is pulled back, and they see Jesus in all of his magnificence as the one who is able even to raise the dead. They are given a glimpse of Christ that they would not have seen had he come right away. And I want to remind you, my dear brothers and sisters, that this is God's design in your life. Whatever your trials and difficulties might be, it's always this, that you might see the Lord Jesus for the strengthening of your faith, for your encouragement, for your refreshment, for your longing for that day when faith will become sight and you will see the Lord Jesus in all of his glory. But he gives you those glimpses throughout this life. That's why you have trials and that's why your faith is tested. It's not because he's unkind to you. It's not because he has forgotten you. Or something else has come up on his agenda and he's, oh yes, I forgot, I needed to deal with that. No, not at all. He knows exactly what he's doing, precisely what he's doing, and he's got your best intentions or best, um, his intentions for you are absolutely the best. Remember, um, remember that uh, hymn that we sometimes sing by William Cooper, he says, uh, behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. So, so when the providence looks bad and it seems that God is frowning, well, behind that frown, there's actually a smile. He's intending this for your good. So what do you need to do? You need to shut out the noises of the crowd that says, might as well go home. Master's forgotten about you. Situations beyond his ability to help you. And have your ears tuned for the voice of the Lord Jesus, who says, do not fear. There's no impediment. My hand is not too short that it cannot save. I delivered Israel out of Egypt. The Red Sea was no obstacle. I just opened a way for them. There's no need for you to fear. Just be at rest. Trust me. Only believe, and all will be well. If not in this life, well, certainly in the life to come, when you will see the Lord Jesus in all of His brilliance, all of His kindness and love and tenderness and sweet compassion, and when all the troubles of this world will be over, because He will make all things new as He wipes away all the tears from your eyes. What a, what a Savior we have in the Lord Jesus, and what 
an enormous, unspeakable privilege it is to know this Jesus and to be a Christian. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord, our God and gracious Father, how kind you are, how generous, how loving, how wise. And we pray that you would give us grace, that we would trust in the Lord Jesus Christ with all of our cares and concerns, that we would put them on his big shoulders, knowing that he cares for us and has demonstrated his care by dying in our place. We pray for those in our congregation, our dear brothers and sisters who are going through particular trials, disappointments, losses, hardships, pains, grief. We pray that you would give them the grace that they might only believe and that we might be instruments of your grace to encourage our brothers and sisters to love them to be compassionate towards them and to point them to our dear Savior so that we would cling all the more to him. Hear us, so gracious God, for Jesus' sake. Amen.